Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, March 23rd, 2023. 323-23 for you nerds out there. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky coming to you from bookriot.com. Um... I've been I've been recording all day, Rebecca, because we've got something new to talk about today. We do indeed. You have secrets. Well, I guess secrets sort, no more. Not really anymore. So, um, start a new podcast, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. It's called First Edition. I'm the producer. Um, it's going to be a lot of different people. You were kind enough to be uh, the first guest on Carson, so to speak, with the first segment. <laughs> the first episode's coming out April fifth. <laughs> Um, you can go wherever you get your podcast, look for first edition. You can see the trailer so you can subscribe and see a little more about it. I'm not sure how to frame this. I've had troubles from internally describing it. It's not this show, obviously. It's not news, but it's talking about books and bigger picture things. There's gonna be a lot of interviews about publishing and the industry, what it means to be a reader and all kinds of different stuff. The, The basic idea is there's a bunch of stuff out there that we could talk about with books. Um, in all different kinds of ways, and that's bigger than this show does. We are we are we are doing news. We're doing headlines. We're doing deep dives into TikTok sales. Just wait for that. That's coming up today. But there's another layer to this that can be interesting. Um, and so, just I guess as an example, the gimmick we came up with for your first appearance, and I think we'll do it regularly if we continue to do this mm-hmm. show in the future, is try to figure out what the it book of the month is, right? So we've done some, we do fall preview dash for Patreon, you know, Liberty and her rotating cast does every week. It's both kind of too big and too small. And so this is a month where then we can talk about what books are coming out, compare them to each other. Um, And then people from publishing, interviews with books that are coming out. um, I think you'll find, if you like this show, you should like that show. Um, so that's coming out I soon. I think that's right. It's, it's like a variety it's hour. It's like a variety kind of hour, yeah. And each show will have two to three to four segments, depending on the length. It should be about an hour, a little more than an hour. So you get a taste of different things. So if you don't like every segment, um, you know, you can skip ahead to do the next one. Though I, I hope every segment is interesting, even if it's not something you would sort of pick out of a lineup um, of your own volition. So that's April 5th coming out. going to be every two weeks for a while. I just lined up. Um, a couple of really interesting things to do. Uh, I guess I'll say now, Vanessa Diaz and Kelly and I are going to talk about Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, ahead of the movie coming out April Wonderful. April 23rd. Maybe you and I will have a chance to talk about it after the movie comes out or something, but getting ready for that, but also to look back on that. Um, I have in the can some interviews with authors already, some people in publishing. I'm really excited to do it, and uh, I hope you'll give it a try. Um, I have to say, after we got off our segment yesterday, we were both like, that was a lot of fun. And we always know there's something it's, there when we when we say that. Yeah, we have a lot of fun most of the no. time, but this was like extra 
a lot of fun. It was a really good idea, a fun idea, and something that we, like, as you were saying, similar to things we had done before, but not that exact shape. And it was just a blast. I was honored and delighted to be you know, first in the seat on Carson. And one of the things the Patreons allowed us to do, shout out to Patreon, patreon.com slash book riot podcast, is we played around with content. And I think we're coming up on a year of the Patreon being live. Thank you so yeah. much to everyone subscribing there. But you and I have played around with different formats, different ways of talking. And I think that really um, got me to think again. And I, I went back to my bear notes, Rebecca, and I had notes about something mm. like this going back to 2015. Um, yeah. So it's been percolating for a while of how to do this. Um, but I think seeing how much fun we have with podcasting, frankly, from the distribution point of view, there's something to podcasting that's different than doing web or other kinds of social or other social media things. Um, so I'm looking forward to playing. So I, I, I have an idea to bring back some formats of, of long podcasts from long ago that uh, Indiana Jones put into the warehouse with the Holy Grail, <laughs> or, excuse me, the Ark of the Covenant, and, and break some of those back out. I know some of you liked old annotated and reading lives and recommended and, and even some get booked type th- things. But I think variety is the best way of, of thinking mm-hmm. about it. So, I um, think so too. there's going to be socials, there's a Twitter, there's an Instagram, there's an email first edition at book. I'll put all that in the show notes. And I guess for those of you who's listening to this show and have been with us for a while, just that, you know, the show at all, you know, us already a little bit. I really would love feedback. Did you, what segments you liked, what's interesting, you know, whatever else ideas you might have, because I'm trying to figure it out. Like, I want to make something people like, and I know that sounds dumb, but I think a lot of times people, when they try to make something, they make the thing they want to make. And mm-hmm. sometimes that does or does not align with what sort of people want. And I've got some ideas, um, but they could all be bad. And I'm just excited to try something new and uh, we'll see. So I don't think it'll change anything here. I don't think we're going to keep doing our yeah, thing here. This is our steady drumbeat, our, 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 our comfort we're- animal here. Um, We're rolling up on our 10th anniversary. I doing know. This Have we May. talked about what we should do for that? I mean, we sort of, <laughs> what should we do for our 10th anniversary? Is this a segment? Is this a show? Are we recording? What are we doing? Sure, we are recording. Okay. Uh, I, we have not talked about what we should do for it. I I don't know. One of the staff members was like, maybe go back and listen to the first episodes and talk about them live. And I was like, absolutely not. Um, yeah, you could also break <laughs> this coffee mug I have in front of me and eat it. You know, those are two, two, those are two things we could do. Uh, really wants to go back and hear themselves 10 years ago think out loud no thank you uh we'll come up with some we'll sort of with nostalgia or we'll give you some ideas maybe we'll talk about some ideas and yeah. we can take a vote or something like that um well let's do our first sponsor break we got a couple other other uh, housekeeping things to do but we're already getting long explode your to be read pile with the new release index your new best friend for finding the best new books Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing! Speaking of things you can sign up for, the deep dive, um, that's Book Riot's new Substack. There's a free version. It's a freemium, as all these Substacks are. Uh, and then if you want to kick in a few bucks, you can get all the sends to you. Uh, Rebecca wrote about reading goals, or maybe kind of reading goals, or, <laughs> yeah, you hear in my voice already. Um, I wrote about the Colleen Hoover strangeness. Sharif has written about gardening. 
Um, there's some nice stuff coming about tracking, I think, in the future. I know Vanessa's got one coming out. Danica's writing. Um, so you can check that out, Deep Dive. Uh, link in the show notes there. We're also hiring a web developer. Um, it's a full-stack web developer. You can read more about what that is. The salaries posted, the jurisdictions, all this stuff. I think we're trying to do the best, the modern best practices for all the information into a job description. Um, so go check all those things out in the Patreon itself. Links in the show notes, bookwright.com slash listen, or in whatever podcast player you're probably playing from right now. Okay, I think that gets us into follow-up. Um, this one came across, well, MetaPoint. So all the best practices for starting new podcasts right now are you got to have some soch, Rebecca. You got to have, you, to let, we don't do this. Indeed this is do. something we talked about for this show. <laughs> you and I are not heavy public soch users um, for reasons that I guess I, I don't feel like getting into right now. It's, we don't see the, 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 the... There were consequences to being a woman who was a heavy public social yeah. user, so I decided not to yeah. be. Yeah, and even as, as not having that, I also had a couple experiences like, yeah, not so much for me right now. Um, but having said that, it is a thing. Social media is a thing. Have you heard about this? Um, and so I've been on literary Twitter a little bit. Some of it is to, right. to establish the the first edition Twitter feed. Also, it's, it is a good, it's a good way to find people and what they're talking about and who's interested in what and making some connections. And so for good and for ill, I'm seeing a lot more of the discourse, um, which <laughs> go with God, my friend. Um, but it, one thing that did come to my attention that I wouldn't have seen, and I think it's worth mentioning here. If we hadn't talked about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow in depth, and we did it part of the Patreon, I know it wasn't part of the show, but we've mentioned mm-hmm. it here. I probably wouldn't talk about that. But since we did, and in the course of that discussion, I remember lauding Gabriel Zevin for not only having to write a good novel, but having to come up with a couple of interesting ideas for video games that her video game developers came up with. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that the Signal one in the, the book that she uses that's, that's written and created by this young female developer was actually based on a book, uh, excuse me, on a game that was real, that was made by a woman named Brenda Romero. Oh, cool. And it was nowhere in the acknowledgments, and oh. only because of Wired and the New York Times pushing her did Zevin say, yes, it's that. And Brenda Romero, as you might understand, is upset. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think it would have been in the acknowledgments, just saying, and the and the idea for this is based on X came from Y, come from Brenda Romero. Yeah, yeah. Which is a bummer. And I, I thought, you know... Just just to do the due diligence, whatever reparative work can be done of saying, I thought that was, I attributed it to Zevin, it was her. I think from my point of view, again, I'm not an ethicist about this, acknowledgement saying this game or this representation of the game is based on the actual woman who actually wrote this game mm-hmm. at this time. And it sounds like that's all, Romero would have been happy with that too. But in a book that is about women in video game development and erasure and not taking people seriously, mm-hmm. the generous reading is a real bad oversight and I don't even know what to say about what the non-generous reading is. I, I, I don't even, I find it hard to little, a little bit hard to believe that Zevin was intentionally not mentioning that a just for reasons and B thought no one would notice eventually. I don't, I'm not sure what right. I think about it. So more of a, more of an informational than a bromide from okay. me, but I thought I would get that out there. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's, the I'm stuck on the this is new information yes. for me and I'm also stuck on the like if the game is even moderately well known you would assume that people would 
notice and we do try to err on the side of the generous interpretation hopefully it was just a mistake but that seems to me like kind of would be the equivalent of Tara Jenkins Reid in her debut novel Daisy Jones and the Six not acknowledging that it was inspired by Fleetwood Mac right. like right. come on yeah. uh, so well, maybe the paperback edition can do there. something um, about mm-hmm. that and um, you know I, I don't have much else to say. It doesn't sound like it's a complicated story. It's a simple, a simple one, but doesn't yeah, mean it's great. And it, it's and I think there's nothing to be lost by citing your inspirations. So. It's it, good to give credit where it's due, and it, it, that's a 400 and some odd page work of creativity that mostly sprang whole out mm-hmm. of Gabrielle Evans' head. So it's like it's all right to acknowledge that some of your ideas came from somewhere else. That's what we're all doing here is learning from each other. It sounds like the game has been out for a while and it was a super it was it's very similar. It's written by one person, an indie project, and Romero kind of made her bones on it. And it's like it sounds like, you know, we talk about writers writers. It sounds like a it's a mm-hmm. it's a developer's game, you know, like if you know you know cool. situation in that community. So um fascinating to see. Also apparently Romero was on the way to GDC, which I think is the games developer conference. Um, and saw a bunch of people reading Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and being asked about it. Like, this sounds like your game. It's like, that sucks, man. That sucks so bad. I'm so sorry. Oh, that yeah. Experience. That's not a great way to find no, out about that. No, no. Very tough stuff. Um, got a lot more feedback about replacing words, lyrics, sentences, mm, updating mm-hmm. them. A lot of people give um, lyrics examples. And um, I have here, let's see. Uh, oh, yeah. Too many to cite. I'm not going to go. There's a bunch. Okay. It happens. That's true. Um, cool. And then, you know, here's one, here's one. I think I'm still okay with my, if you're the artist, if that's your song and it represents mm-hmm. the best of your understanding now, cool. That's great. Yeah. We learn things. We grow. We change. Um, but if you're dead, it's hard to change. Uh, so I don't know what else to say. I, I still I still need some sort of paratextual citation or an appendix or something that this is not the original thing. That's me. Um, I think you had mentioned this before and someone brought this yes. up uh, in an email of what about something, well, here's another example that's maybe, I don't know, a different angle on, um, in the case of Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom, swapping mm-hmm. out the period products mentioned for more modern things. And I don't know what this sense. belt and suspender situation is about that was in the original, <laughs> um, yep. but it's been swapped out. I, I understand with, you know, tampons and Mm-hmm. modern things you can go to the, to the drugstore and find. Is there any, I don't know, Judy Bloom's still alive. I'm going to assume for the moment she at least signed off on that. If she didn't, I don't care about this one so much. Um, yeah, I don't, well, it doesn't, when we're talking about, I, I don't think this doesn't change the substance or the meaning yeah. of the book at all. And and updating the products allows the reader to have the intended experience, you know, mm-hmm. to recognize themselves or to recognize an experience that they might have someday or that people that they know are going to have changing language, whether it's the author's own perspective or language that comes out of the mouths of characters, is that's a different situation. Like, are we updating because we've recognized that this is racist and we don't want to, like, we we never wanted to use racist language or leaving it what does leaving it there mean about the work what does changing it mean about the substance of the work like i think it's totally possible you could take you would take some books that were set in the early 90s and if you wanted to update those for a contemporary audience you could 
you know, write in some iPhones mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, streaming stuff on Netflix instead of going to Blockbuster. And you wouldn't meaningfully change anything about the substance that's happening there. You would just be reaching a new audience and, you know, making it more accessible, making the story and the ideas more accessible for present day readers. Um, I, I do think that's meaningfully different than changing language that conveys something about society, something about the author's perspective, something about an idea we're supposed to understand about a character. Like, uh, well, we talked about White Noise right. by Don DeLillo on the Patreon. And, you know, the book came out in the 80s. The main character expresses a lot of opinions about a lot yep. of things that are not the kinds of things that we would say are okay to put on paper mm-hmm. in 2023. It does tell us really important information about that character, though. And the updated, the movie that came out last year, or early this year, doesn't do really any of that character's internal monologue, but that means we also don't hear him say any of those things. And it doesn't, I don't know, I don't think it harmed the experience. Uh, we we got the vibe mm-hmm. from that film of what it was supposed to be about. But you do learn interesting things about that character because he's the kind of guy who comments on women's weight, right. you know. And if you just take those things out of a book because it's not appropriate to comment on people's bodies anymore, but that's the kind of person who would do it, we are losing that information. And I think there's room, especially in the literary community, for nuance and for understanding that sometimes our characters are going to do things that aren't cool, because people do things that aren't cool. And we need to be able to explore that in fiction and to understand that an author writing a character who does something like that is not the author condoning that behavior. And the it's the author's job in the broader work of the text to make that clear as well, to show us that there is some kind of critique or we're we're seeing this character do this thing for a reason. But you know, updating period products, updating technology, I don't have an issue with that. Yeah. So th- is the author part of the change? Does it rep- represent their best current understanding? That's mm-hmm. one. That's one sort of one gate to pass. And the other one, does it change the spirit of it? Right. Because right. really, I mean, it's almost for me, more of a problem if changing used doll, for example, the language actually does change the spirit, right? That's actually meant to be mm-hmm. fat phobic or, you know, whatever else it might be to something else that make it me more palatable now, but actually is not in the spirit of the original text. Um, right. And again, attention must be paid to those changes. And I don't want them to be modern washed away without comment yes. or without record um, and without context, because those original representations matter. And there's yeah, other the books out there. The context is really important. The context is really yeah. important. So, But it's a good example, right? I mean, it's, an, it's a different kind of thing of what do you do about these texts that are published after um, the fact. And I, you know, as, as you all know, listening, that one of my favorite authors of all time is Whitman, and my favorite book is Leaves of Grass, which mm-hmm. he wrote about 90 billion editions of um, that went from yeah. like a 40-page chapbook to this giant monster by the, the 1898 deathbed edition. So I am not opposed to, to people changing and amending, but once that person is gone, um, we get into very treacherous territory about the truth um, that I think is important to, to keep in mind. Um, speaking of important... Um, God, I'm... If it, this is one of those things like it is true because it feels true to quote Sleepless in Seattle. There are a lot of book bannings, and Rebecca nearly doubled 2022 over 2021. And I wouldn't be mm-hmm. shocked if 2023, mm-hmm. the ho- we're still looking at a hockey stick here um, yeah. for 2023. 
I'm still I'm at a loss. I feel helpless. I'm at a loss. This next story about the U.S. House resolution will further ignite book bans. This is flipping bad, Rebecca. I don't know what to do about mm-hmm. this. This and there doesn't seem to be any sign of abating at this point. I mean, we know the things to do about yeah. it, and they are slow moving things that don't make nearly as splashy headlines yeah. as the the stuff on the side of the book banning. Does this like really fear-driven, closed-minded attempt to protect a you know a way of life that's mostly white, that's mostly straight? Um, is uh, it, we've said all the things that we can say yeah. <laughs> about this over you know the last several years as this has been increasing. It felt whatever the, uh, de-gaslighting, ungaslighting, the uh, anti-gaslighting to see yeah, these yeah, numbers. Yeah, yeah, spotlighting to to it, affirming of like yes, it 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 does feel like there are so many of these and so many more of these than before because there are so many more of them than before and you know of these like doubling the title double the uh challenges in 2022 over 2021 it was 2571 unique titles that were targeted which was a 38 percent increase of titles targeted for censorship since 2021 as we have discussed endlessly here the vast majority of those were by or about members of the lgbtq community or people of color the full annual ala report is coming out in april and i'm sure we'll have more to say about it then but the the things to do are to be you know writing your representatives being politically engaged and if you have the opportunity to run for a local position or support folks who run for local positions it's paying attention to these yeah. local elections because the folks who want to ban books are certainly paying attention to them and we've got to make it harder and we have to make it stop working for them as well this they're they, this continues to happen because it's an effective yeah. political strategy it gains attention it gets pr it plays on parents fears um parents of certain persuasions and we have got to find ways to make this less effective and less sticky. There's a quote here from Deborah Caldwell Stone that's talking about how this is both a difference in degree and kind. Um, mm-hmm. The kind difference here is the strategy. Um, we're seeing these challenges come from organized censorship groups that target local library board meetings to demand removal of a long list of books they share on social media. So I guess... I'd say, let's go back three years when we talk about a story like this. Usually it'd be some nutter that's like, I can't believe my right. son, Timmy, had to read a book where X happened. And it's like, there's a, right. there's a name, and it's a specific, and it's at the Marion County Middle School, JFK local middle school, and it's like specific. <laughs> so, this is... That woman in yeah, Northern but, Virginia waving a dildo right, around that's right, at a yeah. school board meeting. It's, it's yeah. Field of Dreams steps aside, you singular mm-hmm. Nazi cow in this particular moment, where this is organized, it's digital, and it's overwhelming. Um, and they're trying to basically carpet bomb library board mm-hmm. meetings with lists of books knowing that it's it's easier and i get it i i on the whole i i certainly don't blame teachers and librarians for capitulating because they're it's an it's an asymmetric warfare that's happening on them they do not have their their jobs are on the line when this parent's job isn't the parent job could go home or this group yeah. the moms for moms for liberty can move on to the next town if it doesn't go well you get fired blacklisted 
kicked out, removed, that's different for sticking up for for a book or a list of books. So it's very difficult to do, and it's just an overwhelming number of challenges to strain the system and mm-hmm. basically overrun, right, with superior numbers um, and, and f- has found a weakness in basically our humanist discourse about reading and exposure to information found a weakness in it and then running right through it with a, with a football team's worth of people. Um, the 10 most challenged books list will come out on Monday, April 24th. I'm so much less interested in this than I would be some years because the specific books don't matter. I mean, they do yeah. the kinds of books, but like these 10 don't, it's, it's the whole system here. Um, it's not an individual book. Those, that matters a lot less in my mind than I used to feel like it mattered, though I want to know, but I think it's going to be the trends, like you said. It's going to be LGBTQ mm-hmm. and stuff about and it, um, racism and American history not being squeaky clean. That, that's what it's going to be. I mean, that's what it is. It's yeah, it's just, it's so overt. Yeah. You know, it's never been subtle, but it has not always been as overt as it is what these groups are trying to do. You know, we had video of folks at the CPAC conference a couple of weeks ago Mm -hmm. talking about how their goal is to legislate trans people out of public life. And this is part of that. It's all about control. And this is one of the vectors. And it's one of the most powerful vectors that they have by preying on people's fears about what will happen, what will be done to their kids. And I guess to pivot us to the next Mm. point, the next piece in our um, agenda, Kelly Jensen, who's done just as we've said, incredible coverage of censorship attempts over the last few years for us at Book Riot has a piece about a new House resolution in the U.S. House. So at the national level, it's been introduced by Julia Letlow, who's a Republican representative from Louisiana. It's called H.R. 5, and it is a parental rights bill. It has over 70 co-sponsors. All of them are Republican. Um, The bill is going to be voted on sometime in this next week, and it purports to give parents rights that they already have (laughs) or as kelly puts it it blatantly overlooks the fact that parents have always had rights when it comes to their children's education parental rights have been a popular talking point among right-wing politicians and quote-unquote grassroots groups like moms for liberty and no left turn in education this purposeful misnomer suggests parents have not been allowed to have a say in what their children learn or what they uh what their children learn or where they learn. However, parents have always had rights. And then she goes on to point out that the greatest risk to children's lives, school-age children's lives in the U.S. is gun violence. It's not drag queens. It's not books by gay people. And this is also a just hugely and upsettingly successful tactic for redirecting the conversation away from those things, away from gun control, which folks on the far right, you know, are not in favor of away from talking about the things that do make our society very dangerous for children and putting focus on individuals who are just trying to live their lives and be free and be able to be themselves in public in a society that has freedom of speech and freedom of expression rather than really uh, you know going into addressing addressing those core problems because to address those core problems would necessitate removing power and removing some of you know these ideas that these folks are putting forth from our national stage and there's it's all tangled if it feels all tangled up together it's also because it is all tangled tangled up up together together. yeah yeah so there you go link in the show notes there um boy where are we gonna go next it's all over the place uh 
I guess I guess in the distribution, what is in books, how they get distributed. Um, another, the latest episode in my least favorite publishing story. Well, it's up there. Is a book with some dangerous, harmful crap in it being distributed by a major publisher. So this is a title being distributed by Skyhorse, which will distribute anything, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's or will publish anything published by Skyhorse and then distributed by SNS. So what distribute means is like basically using the warehouse, using the trucks, using the boxes, using the Edelweiss Gallery, some or the catalog, just to so, to put yeah. it in there. Um, and it sounds like a pretty nasty book. Free freedom of speech, blah blah blah. You, you know, you can publish stuff like this if you want to. The question is, what kind of what kind of any pressure to put on SNS not to do it? What kind of responsibility do you have for merely distributing a book? I guess I have less of an opinion about this. I don't. I don't really know. I feel like it's more on the. I, I'm not really sure what to say. I mean. Can, are you culpable? Maybe you t- you're taking the few percentage points. You're taking the money from Skyhorse to distribute their stuff, and one of the things they do is this pretty bad sounding book that isn't is not illegal, um, but it's very bad. I would say, and most people I'm sure that work at SNS would probably prefer that it doesn't exist in the world. Um, and this is to the point we've made before about as we know more and we pay more attention to how these things get into the world. People are trying to figure out where to put pressure, where it makes sense, internally and externally for these companies to do mm-hmm. things that they've done for, for a very long time. Um, so there's a story there, and you can see uh, that you can see what's going on there. Because really what SNS would probably have to do is sever the relationship with Skyhorse, right? Or they're going to be on the hook for everything they distribute. So it's really kind of calling into question the distribution model that these publishers have. Because I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of these. I mean, PRH, all of the big five are distributing all kinds of smaller yes. presses, s- smaller presses that on the on the whole tend to do stranger things, right? I, I mean, I think that's fair to say <laughs> they do. Um, so I can certainly see their problem, but maybe maybe it's the juice isn't worth the squeeze for them to to be distributing Skyhorse and other people like this right now. Don't know. Yeah, it's it is interesting. It'll be interesting to see if anything comes of it. I don't expect that anything Mm -hmm. will come of it. Um, I would hope that folks at the big houses are having a conversation about whether the juice is worth Mm -hmm. the squeeze. You know, like it's not Simon and Schuster offering an author money for this book. But as you were saying, Simon and Schuster is making some money off of it. Is that money worth knowing that you have been part of the chain that puts this harmful material into the world. And what kind of, I think it's part of a bigger conversation that publishing is very slowly coming around to having Mm -hmm. about what is the responsibility of a publisher and what is the difference between freedom of speech and like curation that these private businesses in publishing perform when they decide what to publish and what not to publish, what to distribute right. and what not to distribute in the same way that we've had the conversation around like Facebook wanting to say they're not a publisher, they're just a platform. Therefore, they shouldn't be responsible for harmful things that are disseminated on their platform or any of the harmful actions mm-hmm. that are taken in response to that material. That doesn't feel right 
Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't feel true. You're enabling something. And I would like to see publishing take a hard look at that and make some decisions about it. These one-off cases, I think, are very, must be very difficult if you're inside yeah. Simon and Schuster to solve because you you know that there's going to be another one. So you, <laughs> what right. do you do? Do you like do you like Skyhorse? This is the story mm-hmm. about Skyhorse. Like you know, or took fr- that book from Michelle, you know, right? Michelle's like this is what this does, and the not for nothing, the big houses themselves mostly have imprints that do this kind of stuff too like there's a really gross right-wing imprint at prh and there's one at harper collins you know like this this happens how gross they are is on a spectrum but it's out it's out there and it's just like if you're trying to decide the one-offs it must be well do we just sever the relationship entirely because this is just going to keep happening and that you know if if people make enough noise about it they could make it worth it for them to sever it or do you like have someone on staff now whose job is to review every title from every publisher that you distribute and determine which ones you won't distribute. And maybe that's a way to do it, but I haven't seen anybody develop that yet. What kind of scrutiny are you applying to works that you aren't publishing, but that you are aiding and getting out into the world? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just because you can say anything doesn't mean you should say anything. And right. You know, you should make a decision. If you don't believe in this stuff, then think about how, how you shouldn't do it. Um, and it's a legacy of an unscrutinized publishing ecosystem, this kind of book. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's cool. Yeah, I think an interesting counter example, or maybe just tangential, that I am thinking about because I heard James Daunt on the Decoder podcast mm. with Neelay Patel recently. Really interesting, like hour long interview talking about how he has turned Barnes and Noble around. And Neelay Patel just goes right in at one point of like, you know, how are you handling this stuff with book banning? And, you know, Barnes and Noble stores have been targeted. How are you handling the way that, you know, sort of public opinion has turned on J.K. Rowling? Would you remove Harry Potter Mm -hmm. books from your shelves? And he says, you know, we have not yet made the decision to remove an author's books from our shelves because of that author's expressed opinions in public. But we wouldn't hesitate to remove books where the book itself is harmful. Like we would not carry, and he just outright says, we would not carry a book that is about Holocaust denialism. Mm -hmm. Like that's not in line with our values. We would not stock it. We Or if it made it onto the shelves, we would remove it from the shelves. And that kind of clarity from someone running a giant company like that who just outright said it is something I'd like more of and that I don't hear very often. So that was interesting. Like Simon, that's a model that Simon and Schuster could follow. We are not going, here are our values. We're not going to apply them in this way. We're going to apply them in this other way. Here's what that means about Skyhorse titles. Yeah. And you can, you're going to have to scan after the fact because no one at Barnes Noble can read all the books that they, that just can't happen. It's not going to happen. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's reasonable to expect it to happen. But maybe if someone brings up something to you, you can mm-hmm. whack that mole once it pops his head up mm-hmm. um, and be responsible in a way that's sustainable um, in the long term. Yeah, I mean, the, the continuing reckoning with the, I guess, the overt and public, and even if it's public, even within the organizations, remembrance slash realization that all this stuff is political. Um, yeah. That there is no, there is no... Um, perch you can alight to that gets you above <laughs> well, the political fray and say like, we, and we also, just publish books man and also not for nothing the publishers are receiving pressure for this in large part in response to the fact that after the death of George Floyd and mm-hmm. over the last few years as gay and trans rights have been attacked publishers have come out saying yep. we support 
you know, Black Lives Matter. We believe in inclusivity. We want to represent people of all genders and identities and experiences. We want to publish books about those people in their lives. We want to hire gay and queer and people of color. And you cannot talk, you can't say that out of one side of your mouth and then also publish or distribute a book about AIDS denialism and expect not to be, you know, held to it. There's some, you know, apparent hypocrisy that's going on there. And I think that's a a real place where publishing could take a hard look at itself. You hopefully we're hearing publishers express these values because those are genuine values to them. And from the folks we know in publishing, I believe that's true. I think most folks working in books tend towards more liberal attitude, and they do support those values and publishers want that want to go in that direction. That's wonderful. It's also really good for business to say those things. Mm -hmm. They've also gotten a lot of pressure from their employees Mm -hmm. to say those things. So maybe there's some motivated reasoning to do that. So you don't lose a bunch of staff members. But If you're going to come out and make those kinds of public statements, you have to back them up with your behavior. And it's reasonable for your public, your customers, and your staff to expect those statements to be backed up. So I think really the part of this that I'm the most over is that like, in this case, Simon & Schuster, but it'll be another publisher next quarter, they they always seem like a little bit baffled by how this happens. Like, don't they just understand that people can write books and we can distribute them? And it's like, you are in this position because you put yourself in this mm-hmm. position, friend. Yep. <laughs> like, you cannot benefit from supporting inclusivity while also benefiting pro- and profiting from something that's harmful to those same communities. Well, you can. It's just you should expect people to say, wait a minute. Right. <laughs> <I> yeah. mean, <laughs> exactly. They're trying to and it's not going yeah, very well. well. See, you know, these things tend to blow over for rightly or wrongly. You know, I'm. In six days, mm-hmm. will this still be a story? Will the, will anything change? I don't know. Yeah. Um, speaking of things that will be a story, and we're seeing all <laughs> how the water getting poured onto the co- concrete of ChatGPT is finding all the cracks in all kinds of things, but especially into the world of books and reading and writing and language. Um, two notable things. One you found was there are now more than, I'm sure today there's even more, right? Uh, more than 200 books mm-hmm. are available on Amazon that are expressly written by ChatGPT. Um, you know, submitted by someone specifically. It doesn't look like Amazon has a position yet. I wonder if they're going to think about this soon. I don't know how they'll police it, but some sometimes just putting that mm-hmm. ADT sticker on the window will prevent people from coming in, even if you don't have the system set up. Um, you note that there are 2 million self-published books produced each year. So as a percentage, I mean, some infinities are bigger than others. I feel like 2 million self-published books is already infinity books. So, no, I'm serious. Like, if we add another 200,000, I mean, okay, it's infinity plus two. I don't know. I I don't know how to do this. Well, yeah, I think I was thinking about the the sky is falling kind Mm -hmm. of fears that we've seen expressed about chat GPT. And like, now that this is out there, all of the online marketplaces are just going to be overrun by, you know, AI written books. And that's going to crowd out the real art. And like that same fear existed about self-publishing mm-hmm. and there are 2 million self-published of, books. That same fear was about the printing press with Gutenberg's like now everyone right. can print a book. <laughs> right. And there are two, we've gotten to the place where 2 million oh, self-published books per I'm like year. Sweating, and just looking at that. Like, I know. And out. those have, they have not successfully crowded out the real art, yeah. you know, and the real art makes itself 
known, which is, again, I feel like we have to do all the same caveats every time we talk about mm-hmm. ChatGPT because it's so early still. But the fact that like this the ChatGPT has been out for several months, that there are only 200 tells me something. There's a note uh, in here, one of the, uh, a guy named Brett Schickler, who's a salesman in Rochester, New York, he gave prompts to ChatGPT to write a 30-page illustrated children's book he had never written before. He's only made about 100 bucks yeah. <laughs> through the sales so far. Uh, and, and he is still saying, though, like, but I could see people making a whole career out of this. Those two things contradict each other. <laughs> You have made a hundred bucks out of it. But why do you think this is going to be a successful avenue? Someone is going to be successful at it in the same way that a handful of someone's have been bonkers successful in self-publishing. It will like it will happen. I just continue to think those will be the outliers. And it was you know, it made me feel more sane mm. to see like only 200 of these are out there so far. Granted, probably folks are using chat GPT and not acknowledging it. And Brett Schickler is one of those. It notes here that he doesn't list chat GPT as a co-author of his book, but he was happy to talk to the inside hook and to acknowledge it. So there's probably more than that. But like this is not yet overrunning at least the, the mainstream marketplaces. Like I have heard that chat GPT and AI written pieces are overrunning maybe some of the online communities that do genre fiction or fan fiction, sci-fi stuff. It's unfortunate that that's happening. And this is just a technology that we're going to have to, like, this is here. We're just going to have to grapple with it. And looking at the numbers was really helpful for me. I'm like, all right, we get 2 million of these a year. We've had self-publishing for about 10 years now in a meaningful way you can still go online and find your way to mm-hmm. a good book about the thing you want to read about without having to wade through pages and pages and pages of self-published stuff. And that's not to say that all self-published stuff is bad, but I'm just using the la- the most recent example of the evolution right. in technology that we thought was going to ruin art. It did not. I think at least so far, we're seeing the same thing with chat GPT. And it's it's definitely not like the trajectory of like this will immediately take take over everything. I was talking to um, Alex, who's our developer here at Book Riot, mm-hmm. about ChatGPT, and we were talking, and um, it occurred to me when I was talking to him, you know, one use case that I do find exciting. So Vanessa and I were talking the first time ChatGPT came up on this show was with Vanessa, and we were talking about that Clark's World being overrun. So having a hard time coming up with interesting use cases on the reader side there's there's use cases on the back side of the publication mm-hmm. and production of books that I, that I do believe and one of those that kind of meets in the middle is translation getting books in translation oh, yeah. is really hard translation is expensive um, books in translation tend not to sell very well so the return on investment tends to be pretty low so there tends not to be much investment and one thing these large language models are doing better than the transcription in language, you know, remember Google Translate when that first came out, it kind of seemed yes, like magic, yeah. but it couldn't do what, and Alex used the term of art they use in game development, which I guess is called localization. So it's not just the, the literal translation, but they're translating the meaning and localizing it to a similar meaning in the idiom. So to use an example in English, we say something like, a stitch in time saves nine. If you don't have that idiom in Japanese, a direct translation to that is gibberish, Right. Right. So, and that's where the real art of translation can happen in these large language models may be able to do that better. They may be mm-hmm. able to have data sets. Does that crowd out translators? I don't know. Maybe it does, which I'd be sorry about. Would it potentially make a lot more books available around the globe in languages that the books would not exist in? Maybe. 
And that could be a real kind of silver lining. It's fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. A different kind of accessibility that we were talking about, accessibility in different terms we didn't think of, but that'll be an interesting one to see. Now, who gets the credit for the translation? I guess that goes to our next story. <laughs> the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, um, is proposing to allow the use of chat GPT in scripts as long as it doesn't impact author credential and, and res- residuals. Basically, we want some human to get paid, to get credit and get paid yes. when this stuff gets made. Um, we don't want this to be a situation where the robot comes and writes Mission Impossible 9 and there is no money given to a human for a story, whatever else that might be. I think this is, to me, probably dealing with the truth is that some of this mm-hmm. is going to be used for some of this crap. Uh, and, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean all the stuff that goes into making anything that has words. People are going to find a way to use ChatGPT, or you should assume that to be the case. So rather than swallow the thing whole or bury your head in the sand, what kind of terms can you come up with now um, yes. that will protect, offer, cultivate, you know, sustain the creative work of humans when it comes to really anything at this point? Um, I thought that was an interesting compromise uh, to see there. Yeah, I thought it was interesting as well. And like the only proposed policy of its kind that isn't so that I've seen from any you know creative guild in any of the creative media that wasn't like, let's just outright ban yeah. this. It's not going to work, Rebecca. You, they shouldn't. It's not going to work. 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 Let's do our second sponsor break and do a couple other things. Um. Constance Grady at Vox has a really good piece about the money of book talk and not just sales, mm-hmm. though I think that's kind of implicit here, but the book talkers, the influencers, the content creators who have sizable audiences and make money or can make money. Um, and she gives some examples. And I think, I think for me, it's the data is the most interesting piece is mm-hmm. how much do you get for what? Um, so I don't know. Where do you want to go with this? It's a long piece. Read it. We're not going to do the whole thing because it's worth reading. I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, pick up. Yeah, pick, I was also interested me. in the yeah. The how much do you get for what? And and it ranges. There are folks talking about you know a book company offered me a hundred dollars for a video and they would control all of the rights to everything forever. And then there are folks who make two thousand yeah. dollars per video to promote their book. And listening or reading these folks talking, the book talkers talking about that they're, you know, doing this labor, they're making this stuff, they want to benefit from it, they and, you know, be paid for their work. And they're struggling with how do you do that in an authentic way. And so like the thing you have to say, if you're an influencer in this situation is, I would only ever take money to promote a book or a product that I genuinely do like, I would never take money to promote something that I that I wouldn't, you know, genuinely endorse. And I hope that that's true. I believe it's true for most people. But that's the that's the struggle for yourself. And Mm -hmm. how do your viewers know that the review you're giving is authentic? If you were paid to give it, would you have chosen that book to talk about if you weren't getting paid to talk about that book? Or would you have chosen something else? Would you have said the words you said about that book in the way that you said them if you weren't getting paid? And this is like, it's not special to TikTok, though. This is the core question about all sponsored content everywhere when you're talking about a sponsored review or sponsored placement in this way. And so it's interesting to see the book talkers like really dive into that. 
the way that they have framed it of I want to get paid for my labor is an interesting evolution to me. Because when we saw like when blogging came up, then when YouTube was the next thing, and folks were realizing you could run ads on your blogs, you could take ads or do sponsored stuff on YouTube. The discourse was more like, like I'm. It's nice that I can make some money off of this hobby mm-hmm. <laughs> of mine. The phrasing, uh, and this might be elder millennial stuff, so I want to own that. But like the phrasing of like, I want to be paid for my labor, as if you are being asked to do it for free right. by the publishers, is I think tr- a tricky space to be in, and I'd like a little bit more scrutiny and conversation around that. Like nobody's making you get on TikTok. No. Nobody's making you talk about particular books. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to create content anywhere. (laughs) If you are choosing to Mm -hmm. create it, you are functionally creating free advertisements for the makers of whatever the thing is that you're talking about. They don't owe you anything for that. You've chosen to do it. And watching the, the tension that develops between the creators on one side saying, like, I want publishers to pay me for this labor that I'm doing for them but that originally they never asked me to do. And then marketers wanting to find, you know, effective ways to co-opt that audience and get the message out that they want. It's just kind of fascinating. I think that's the most interesting part of it to me, because at least, you know, when we started blogging, it was very clear. (laughs) Like, nobody's making me do this. There were some verbals (laughs) of like, book bloggers do so much for the industry, shouldn't we get some of the money? Which, okay, but no one asked you to, what are the terms would be. When you get money for labor, there's stipulations that come along with, and I think that's one piece that Mm -hmm. I think these creators that are mentioned here are very wise and their right to notice is, Mm -hmm. I'm giving up something for that money. If I'm taking two grand for a video, I'm giving up something, even if it's just for that video, which is, I can't say whatever I want. Um, The stipulation that I have to read the book. Well, that's one book I have to read versus what I'm going to do otherwise. It changes something. I got to put a hashtag in there, explain to my audience. Mm -hmm. Will they see me different? And you're basically trading a little piece of authenticity for some cash. And hey, listen, we run a website and all the things. We trade often. We don't do it like this, though, where it's you out there talking about the book and, you know, in your jeans and doing a dance and, you know, walking along, drinking a latte, talking about you like the Emily Henry book or whatever. Um, we'll read a podcast ad, but it's more clearly defined as advertising. And this is the murky middle. And it's hard for both marketers and these. And there's some, I also should mention there's something about books, too, that people are more there's more squeamish about it. And I don't know if it's right or wrong. They just are. Then if it's, I don't know, lip gloss or vitamin water. No, they just are, Rebecca. It's just a different. It feels it's like it's, it's different true. somehow. Yeah. And I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it just is. Um, well, yeah, I think it's it's always helpful to pull the example out of the book thing yes. that has so much vocational awe right. and take it to let's go with lip gloss in this example. Like if I going to go on my Instagram and tell people how much I love Burt's Bees, am I am I like really helping out Burt's Bees and therefore I deserve a, a cut? <laughs> I mean, it depends. I mean, how many people had forgotten <laughs> about Burt's Bees until you're 500,000 TikTok folks saw it. I mean, you know, it's just exposure or something like that. But like Mm -hmm. something about a book is like more of your identity is imbued or you do some sort of like identity or sensibility transaction when you recommend a book. You just do in a way that you don't really think about when you're saying I like Coke better than Pepsi. It's just just different. And I think so much of this is actually... not even about the problem of social media, but about the problem that social media introduces to us of turning your 
avocation and your hobby into a side hustle. Mm -hmm. Like, it's fine to just be a person who likes books and has that as a core piece of your identity and that you want to talk about them with a community in some fashion. It's also fine if you want to build a big audience and get paid to talk about books to that big audience. But the ways that those lines get blurred of like, I I started off as a person who was just talking to my community mm-hmm. and now I feel like I deserve to be paid for doing that is... I I think that's a tricky situation. If if somebody comes and recognizes value in your community and they want to offer you money to, you know, create sponsored content or do whatever, like more power to you, make those decisions and, and see how it goes. It certainly works out for some people, but the, the starting off of a hobby and then the expectation that at some point, if you're good at the hobby, the industry that that hobby lives inside owes you something. Yeah, the industry's is going to knock on your. Here's hello, hello. <laughs> right. It's the industry. We owe you <laughs> right. a check. You've been doing such good work for us. <laughs> right. <laughs> like that's I, I understand why readers feel like they do so much for the industry, and this does get also tangly because you get authors on social media begging readers yeah. to like please leave me a Goodreads review, please help me. Like there are benefits to the industry of passionate readers feeling like they are helpful and feeling like they are part of the industry. But I think that just on a scale writ large, what's happening is that a lot of readers on social media have like what's functionally a parasocial relationship to the publishing Mm -hmm. industry. And they think that they have a relationship. Yeah. And I didn't get this in time for the show notes, but there was a piece on the bookseller about um, Nielsen did a, um, a study about how trying to quantify TikTok's influence on direct book sales and they call it relatively small. Um, Mm. Maybe I'll save this for another time. And I've got some, we haven't, you know, we need to sweep out methodology corner. We haven't gotten a, we we do, but this one is maybe a good candidate. Maybe we'll look at it for next time. And I wonder, I wonder how many books it actually moves. I, I know it moves some, I know it moves some. How to quantify that's very difficult. I think Nielsen has done some interesting extrapolations. Mm-hmm. Maybe I buy them, maybe they don't. But I think what I would say is I would guess that this is hard to quantify. Um, and social media tends to be like that. Not for nothing, books present from a marketing point of view, and that by marketing I mean advertising, a unique problem is that there's a lot of books, Rebecca, and most of them don't mm-hmm. have too much money. So an individual, a $500 sponsorship for an influencer with a bunch of strings attached is very hard for a a publisher to sustain. They're getting 2,000 bucks to review a book. (laughs) I was like, that's incredible. That's an incredible amount of money in our industry. That is incredible. And there are just not that many books, as you're saying, that have that much money available to throw in in so many directions. Like It's not uncommon for a debut novel to have a marketing budget of $5,000. Or or less. Or zero. Or less. You're going to... Right. There's a lot of them that have zero. But like you're going to spend or expect a publisher to spend 2000 out of their five, maybe 5000 mm-hmm. on a sponsored TikTok video. That's just, those are outliers. That's an outlier story. Yeah. Um, I'm glad Constance did this. I'm glad to see it there. Really I th- interesting. I think it's probably what I expected. I guess I know nothing surprising mm-hmm. to me. It feels almost like um, I would expect. There wasn't a lot of surprise, but it's nice to see it laid out, um, kind of like the book banning thing. Uh, even if the story is happier here. I, I should also say, anyone who's doing this and making a hustle out of this and you're happy with it, it's cool, man. Yeah, we did this. go to town. We've done this in a different f- format. So I, I completely sympathize, empathize, idealize um, 
and uh, rationalize a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing here. And, 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 I, and I, I can see it at this point from so many different angles than I did, you know, 10 years ago or mm-hmm. 11 years ago yeah. when I started this. I think we better kick Frontlist Foyer down the we'll, – we'll do a double, a double shelf next week. Um, unless there's something right. you need to get off your chest before we go. Oh, no. Right. We can save it. Yeah. We'll just double up. Books are there for you. They're waiting. They're not, they're not going anywhere. Uh, as always, you can find show notes, bookrat.com slash listen. You can shoot us an email podcast at bookrat.com. Go subscribe to First Edition <laughs> wherever you get your podcasts. And the Deep Dive wherever you get your newsletters, which is actually not how Substack works. You have to go to a website Substack. to get your newsletters. <laughs> But you can read it wherever you get your email. Yeah. Or in your RSS reader, which is, that's that's an elder millennial. I don't even know that. That's like a mm-hmm. boomer. RSS, getting emails <laughs> in the form of RSS readers like I do for some Substacks is, I'm not even sure it's a what move. that is. Yeah, that's, that, a move. that's like building model train sets. Um, it's a thing you just confessed yeah. to the internet. Well, <laughs> you know, it has its utility. Uh, Rebecca, we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>